Take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And while you're turning there, uh, there are just a, a couple of things to point out. This is a very familiar passage to all of us. Probably one of the, probably one of the most familiar passages of Ecclesiastes um, that we, um, that we'll come to. Uh, it's popular because it's often read at funerals and, uh, or other occasions. And of course, in the 1960s, the birds popularized it by putting it to music in a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. So we might as well just get that out of the way. All right. And so nevertheless, because of that, it's used repeatedly, but it's seldom understood correctly. And so I pray that today, as we go through this passage together, that um, we will not only understand it, but that it will bring great comfort and encouragement to our heart, as well as the challenge it is, as well as we live life in a fallen world under the curse. And so stand with me as we read God's Word together. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read through the poem all the way down to verse 15, even though we could keep going all the way to the end of the chapter, we'll stop at verse 15. For everything, there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have, been, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a quote that comes from my favorite movie and book. There always has been a Baggins living here under the hill in Bag End. And the reason I say that is because that's what's here in front of me, right here on stage. Now, I did this because I know there's kids in the room, so kids, 
Yes, the pastor has a Lego set right up here on stage. All right? And uh, that is what this is. It is bag end. It is bag end, the Lego version. And it's one of many Lord of the Rings Lego sets that I own and have built. We are actually a Lego family. Um, just ask Pastor Joe and all the different bins of Legos that were unloaded when we moved here. And as a Lego family, we have a lot of Lego projects. I'm sure many of you can relate to this. Now, this is my favorite, but it's not the magnum opus of Legos for, for me personally. That would be the Tower of Orthanc from the Two Towers for all my Lord of the Rings geeks in here. And, uh, and, and so that one would stand like this tall and it took hours to construct. My kids, I allowed them to participate on a, just along the way. Um, but nevertheless, it illustrates that you're not supposed to outgrow Legos. You just don't. At least I haven't. And, uh, there, but, but Legos today are different too because there's like these Legos, some of you have them, I know, like, they're like 5,000 pieces. They cost $499. That's actually the cost of Rivendell, just so you know, um, which I don't own, but I hope one day I will. That will be my next Lego project, all right? Now, you say, why are you bringing this up? Well, because a Lego project requires you to patiently take all of those pieces that come in those bags and to dump them out step by step, put them together to ultimately make something amazing in the end. It looks like, it, 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 but, but what you have in the end doesn't look like all those parts, right? All those bricks, all of those uh, stickers and pieces and, and things that are in the instructions. And I, I, I believe that Ecclesiastes 3 is like a Lego project. And as you read through particularly this poem and then the rest of the book, you, or the rest of this section, this chapter, what you see is, is that, is that, um, you have all the various pieces of life. You have the experiences, the events, the circumstances. You have people, you have emotions, you have places, you have seasons, you have minutes and moments and hours and days. And, and as you're reading through particularly the poem, uh, the, the, all of those things are locked together to make up our individual lives. But unlike Lego, we do not have a map or model that show us the result. When we build Legos, we have a box. I usually put that box up in front of me so I can keep in front of me. As I'm tediously working through all the pieces, I want to be reminded that's what I'm heading for. Right? That's what, that's the end goal. And so, but in life, we don't have that. What we have in life is the, all of the pieces that you see in, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. But what we have is God. And God is the one who has the master plan. And so there is so much that we don't know about life, right? Even when we look at verses 1 through 8. I mean, we don't know who, I mean, we don't know who we're going to marry. We don't know how many children we're going to have. We don't know what jobs we'll have or careers we'll have. We don't know the places, all the places we'll live, right? All of those are the pieces that come as we live out our life under heaven. Yet even as we are building and pieces come together, 
ultimately, we don't know exactly how it all fits together. And so, as you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's what the preacher's driving us to. He's already taught us in chapter 1 that life is a vapor, that it's breath-like, it's marked by death. And then in chapter 2, our search for gain and profit as the pieces of life snap together, that whether it's education or pleasure or pursuits or whatever it is, that as all those things come together, ultimately any lasting satisfaction slips away from us like sand because of death. Any hope of real lasting profit escapes us because in the end, what did we learn last week? The hourglass empties, doesn't it? The final drop of sand will fall into the bottom of the hourglass and then it ends. And what happens though as you get to the end of chapter 2 and you come to chapter 3 is that even though the hourglass empties, even though life slips us by, there still is the reality of time and this chapter makes us think about time. It makes us think about our lack of control. But it ultimately presents to us the reality of God. Sure, we make decisions, choices of what to eat, what clothes to wear, houses to buy, but we don't, there are many things in life that we don't choose, we don't determine. Our times ultimately are in God's hands. Psalm 31 verse 5. And so what, 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 what these first eight verses or this chapter is, is that you get to be on the, you're on the construction site of your life but you realize that you're not the site manager. The site manager is God. And everything that happens in this time-bound universe is under the authority of God, including every detail of your life. And so part of living well under the sun and having ultimate hope despite the passing of time in the hourglass, is that you recognize that you are bound by time and God is not. That's what you need to see. You and I are bound by time, but God is not. And here's, here's the key truth that kind of runs through the, 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 the entirety of this poem and this passage. God in His sovereignty control, controls time and all the seasons of our lives that He has ordained. That God in His sovereignty controls time and all the seasons of our lives as He has ordained. This poem, in other words, is actually about God's sovereignty. And that's what we miss when we hear it read at a funeral or at some other occasion or we hear it played on the radio. We miss the reality that this poem is actually about God and His authority and His sovereignty. And so let me give you just a basic definition of sovereignty. You ready? Here it is. This doesn't come out of a theology book. This is just one summary statement. Sovereignty means that God is in total control of absolutely everything. That's it. That's, that's God's sovereignty. That He is in absolute control of everything. 
And that's what you see here. And that is a good thing. That actually will provoke in us, especially for us who are believers, a sense of joy, a, a, a reality of peace and hope that you'll see as you get to the end of verse 15. And so this morning I want to look at God's sovereignty and I just want to look at it at three different angles. I want us to consider the, the poetic aspect of God's sovereignty, the perfect aspect of God's sovereignty, and then the purposeful aspect of God's sovereignty as this, this passage unfolds. So let's look first at God's poetic sovereignty and our existence. And you see that in verse 1. You see God's sovereignty over our existence is actually asserted, it's stated, and then shown poetically in the passage in front of us. Look at verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Notice that God's sovereignty over our existence is stated. And it's stated in that the times and the seasons are determined. In other words, they're appointed. They don't happen by random chance. Everything that you see here, every time you see a time, a time for this, a time for that, is, it's, this is not karma. This isn't chance. Because what we have to ask is this, who dictates these times? Who orchestrates these seasons? God does. He determines when you are born. And when you will die. You didn't have a choice. You don't have a choice in that. You, your will was not honored in that. You don't determine your seasons or your days between birth and death. Guess what? God does. Augustine said this. Nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states this, that God's holy, wise, and powerful providence governs all creatures and all their actions. That's exactly what is here in this text. Does that, does that parallel with Scripture? Sure it does. Look at, listen to Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. Did you hear that? He does what He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back His hand to say to Him, what have you done? Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Proverbs 16, verse 9. In His heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Don't you see how that plays out in verses 1 through 8? If there is one doctrine most clear in the Bible and yet most resisted by human beings, it is the absolute, total sovereignty of God over everything. I, I agree with Jerry Bridges who wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God, or Trusting God about the sovereignty of God. And Jerry Bridges writes this, if there is a single detail in the universe that can occur outside of God's control, then he is not God and cannot be trusted. But aren't you glad that he is God 
and that there is nothing in the entire universe from all the galaxies that are above us to all of the, uh, all of the my, uh, organisms that are beneath us that is not out of his control, that he controls all of it? I mean, there's something incredibly powerful about that reality. And so therefore, the first verse declares God's sovereignty. For everything there is, emphatic, there is, there is appointed, there is determined a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so look at how all of our everythings, all of the everythings of human existence are described in this beautiful poem. All the every matter under heaven. And so from the proposition of verse 1, we are given then a poem about time and the scope of God's sovereignty. And what Solomon uses is he uses a, he uses a, a, tech, a poetic technique called merisms. Merisms. A merism basically just takes two things that are polar opposites and then puts them in contrast so that you have a whole. Birth, look at verse 2. There is a time for one to be born and a time to die. See the polar opposites? But yet it's one unit. And so birth and death comprise the whole of human existence. Everything in between. Weeping and laughing. Human emotion. And as you read down through verse 8, there are 28 items. You need to get this. Now I'm not, don't, don't think I'm some kind of like numbers guy, like there's a numeric code in the Bible, that stuff's nonsense. But in many places, especially in prophetic literature and poetic literature, numbers do have symbolic significance. So as you read through this poem, there are 28 items, there are 14 pairs in multiples of seven. And in Hebrew, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of totality. The reason why that's important is, is because artistically and intrinsically, every line in this poem encompasses our human existence beginning at birth and ending in death. From the cradle to the grave, verses 1 through 8 show us God's sovereignty over all the complexities of life. In other words, all of these pairs are the bags that hold the Legos. And so what Solomon does is, opens the bag, dumps them out on the table, so that we can start sorting through them. And notice as you go to verse 2, let's just, we're not gonna do this exhaustively, but I just wanna run through the poem. Notice, let, let's see if we see the totality of existence. So verse 2, look at the opposites of birth and death. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Out of the gate, the poem begins, it, it, out of the gate, it begins with life and death. We are given the joyous occasion of birth. Think about that. The joy of birth. From the sonogram and the image on that sonogram to the development in the womb of an infant, a human being, developing in the womb of its mother to that day that it 
Well, before it was, well, it depends on who you are. Like before the birth, you, you either have a gender reveal and you do some kind of like, you know, paintball war and then whoever gets shot with pink, that's a girl and shot with blue, there's going to be a boy. Or you're a Calvinist and you just figure out beforehand what the gender is. And so maybe that's you. But anyway, and so we were the, we were the ones that wanted to know what kind, are we having a boy or are we having a girl? But you see what I'm saying? Right? The, the whole point here is, is that the, the, the birth and all of the joys that come with the arrival of a child. And then when the birth happens, you hold that little one in your arms. And so notice how he begins with this, the most joyous occasion. And then he ends with the most tragic occasion, right? See the polar opposite? Death. Death. We die. That death and life. Death is built into the ebb and flow of the poem. He skips to the end right away. We're born, we die. And we need to get this before anything else. And we need to recognize that it is God who is the one who forms us in the womb, brings us into the world. Psalm 139, verse 13. It is God who appoints our time of death. Job says in Job 14, verse 5 and 6. Solomon puts these, these two polar opposites in place so now we can examine everything in between and so if you notice the very next section he says a time to plant a time to pluck up what is planted here he's talking about harvest you plant and then you harvest there's a natural order to this we had a garden in indiana i know you're shocked that i have a i had a garden i'm revealing my farmer background just kidding but we would plant in April. We wouldn't plant in December. Because you need to plant in April or in May. And then the harvest comes in August. Sometimes September. But the end of summer. And so what he's getting at is, is that the point is, is that there are things that are built into the world by design. Go ahead and plant in a different season and it won't go well. These first, what these first lines do is establish human responsibility reflected in our choices and decisions. However, all of our living and all of our acting takes place under the authority of God and His sovereignty. You don't determine the seasons. You don't make the rain fall or the sun shine. We don't have control over the rotation of the globe. God does. And so as you look here in verse 3, he says a time then to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. And so when you get to verse 3, now what he's doing is, is he's introducing all the stuff of life. In verse 2, look what it did. You had two negatives. You had, you had two positives and two positives followed by two negatives. Now you have two negatives followed by positives. Why is that important? Because you need to think poetically, not polemically. Because we're so used to New Testament preaching, we think polemically. We're ready for the argument. We're ready for the one, two, three point. But that's not how poetry works. You need to think poetically about this. And so these first lines, as you read these verse three and four, what he's doing is, is he wants you to think like an English major, not an engineer. You know why? Because as you go all the way to verse 8, there's no logical order to any of this. 
There's no logical order to any of it. And what it does is, is it creates this feeling in you, like at the end of Toy Story, I believe it's three, where Andy goes off to college, and all the stuff is packed up, and all the toys are done, and he's moving on. There's a nostalgia here that's created. And so, there's a, notice again, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. So that we are seeing that in a fallen world, there's killing and that there's healing. And God is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over every arrow that flies, every bullet that is shot, every battle that is, that is raged. He's sovereign over healing and he's sovereign over medicine. He's sovereign over all of these things. And in life, we experience all of those. So, as you get to verse four, look what he says. There's a time to, there's time to break down. There's a time to build up. We construct, we deconstruct. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. And so think of the thing, what, what this does is, is it, doesn't it provoke for you thoughts about things you've built, things you've torn down? Learning you've, education you've received, things that you have accomplished and done, things that have passed. And in verse four, think of the moments where you have wept so hard that you didn't think you could see the light of day. Verse 4, think of the moments in life where you have laughed uncontrollably. Have you ever had those moments where you just couldn't stop laughing and tears just begin to come out of your eyes? Have you had those moments of mourning where you thought you would never laugh again? Moments where you, again, couldn't stop laughing? Those moments where maybe a, a friend came to console you or a word was spoken to you and suddenly the light broke through the darkness of the night? So what he says is in life there are moments that we, there are moments that we weep, moments that we laugh, there are moments that we mourn in sorrow and we dance with joy. What's that make you think of? Those gravesides that you've stood over? That casket shadowing that hole in the ground that will soon, once all is, all the committal is over, will take that body into the grave and you hold your loved one and you weep and you mourn? Or, or, or what about time to dance? You think of that wedding where you danced, even though you're Baptist. Yeah, but you're one of the fun ones. Right? We dance. We celebrate. We have joy. But, but notice that, that there's a relational component where all of these experiences under the sun, we, we share it in relationship with fellow human beings. These experiences that, that, that we share together, there, there's no order to them because you don't plan when you're going to mourn. You don't plan when you're going to dance. You don't plan where there's going to be seasons of melancholy and then seasons of happiness. You can't plan that. It's just all part of the complexity of living under heaven. In a world that is under a curse. And then if you get to verse 5, he returns to, he says, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. Whether he's talking about gardening or putting up a fence or constructing something, the point that he's getting at is, is that, is that these again are, are just random, arbitrary things that we do. There's not a right or wrong in that. There's a time that we embrace. There's a time that we refrain from embracing. 
There are times that we hug, and then there will be times that we let go. For six, there is a time to seek and invest, a time to seek and a time to lose. Most likely, he's talking about financial things. There's a time when we can experience prosperity. There's a time when we can experience poverty and difficulty. There are times that we learn to keep silent, times that we learn to speak, times that we seek and lose, keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, to create, to tear down, to keep silent, time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time relationships are formed, a time when relationships can dissolve, a time where we see evil perpetuated among human beings and we, we hate that. And there's a time for war and a time for peace. And as you move through all of those things, what we see is that this poem shows us a mixture of good times and bad times and all the in-between things. It shows us that life is marked by all these seasons, all these pieces filled with sorrows and joys. And the poem takes on a, a rhythmic pattern, right? Think of a young woman who starts as a daughter and a sister perhaps and then perhaps gets married and becomes a wife and a companion and then over time, as the Lord allows, becomes a mother and then over time becomes a grandmother and then becomes a widow. You see, that's life. And this poem shows it in all its reality, all of its ups and downs, all of its positives and negatives. And so what Solomon is doing is, is that he's doing something because what we would like to say is we just want to stay on the positives, don't we? I want to laugh. I want to have dancing. I want to have healing. I want to have success. I want all of the things that are positive. We don't want the other things. But that's not going to happen in life in a fallen world. He's showing us that we live east of Eden. And we live under the curse and the negatives that were, they were not, they were, did not, they were not part of Genesis chapters one and two. But they came in Genesis three. And one day they will not exist after Revelation 22. But they do now. And there is a time for everything. And the whole thing is leading us to this, just this observation. That life unfolds in times and seasons that we don't ultimately control. But add this right here. But God does. But God does. Learn this. God gives us these times and seasons. And, and you know what that does for you? It helps you where you are. Whatever season that might be. And I don't mean that cliché. Because it's, it's not just like this season, right? We see the, you can have one season, you can move through that and it'll come back again. Whatever you're going through, it helps you understand where you are. And helps you understand that again, it's not because of karma. There's no prosperity theology here. There's no way to get rid of all the negative things. Because it's just going to happen. Life is a roller coaster with ups and downs and twists and turns. But the great news of the passage is there's a God who's in control of all of it. And so there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings. It's, again, my, my favorite scene. And in this scene, Frodo is complaining to Gandalf, the wizard. 
And he's frustrated because of all of the chaos that has erupted in Middle Earth because of the ring of power. And he says, I just wish that, I wish this ring would have never come to me. I wish that I didn't even live at this particular time. You know what Gandalf says? He says, all, he says, that's, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Now that's a beautiful statement, but what people miss is, is that Tolkien's a Christian. And on one hand, what he's saying is, is that it doesn't matter what time we find ourselves, we do have a responsibility to live out our seasons that God gives us. But that's the key. These times are given to us. Some people are given to live in a time of war. How about your grandparents? How about your great-grandparents? Some people are given to live in times of peace. I mean, I've never, I've never fought in a war. I've never, I've never been enlisted or drafted. But how many people have? Right? We don't control those things. But those are things that God gives to us and that, and rules over in a sovereign world. And so what this shows you is God's poetic sovereignty over our existence. And that's a good thing because it leads us to the second thing, which is God's perfect sovereignty and our limits. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he asks a question. You get through the poem. And he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now, here's what's interesting. He's already asked this question before. But here's what I love about Ecclesiastes. Again, what I love about this book is that it doesn't give you a to-do list. In other words, you don't read this and then get to the end of it and you have a bunch of commands. He doesn't give you marching orders about how to have good time management. That's not what he does. There's no agenda here. You know what he wants the believer? You want to know what he wants the congregation to know? He wants them to know that what they need most is a good and right vision of God and his sovereignty. It is God who numbers our days, who regulates our moments and orders our steps. And it is God that rules our existence. And so when you get to verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Well, he doesn't tell you any gain because ultimately there's not any kind of earthly gain. But what we do have as believers is we have God. Look what he says. I have seen the business that who? That God has given to the children of man to be busy with. We have a God-given business. And as he states this, what we see is, is now the question that he asked in chapter 2 is fully developed, or chapter 1, I should say. And now it is asked in light of all these polar polarities. And while the answer still is no, he uses it to transition from the poem to the prose. And he then gives us a wonderful vision of God who gives all things. And so we have a God-given business, but we need a God-centered perspective. That's what verse 11 drives at. Look at verse 11. It is God who has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, right there is an incredible God-centered perspective. Notice just a few things that he says. One, he says that God has made everything beautiful. Even these burdens, even this 
this unhappy business that we experience in life. He's saying that God has made everything beautiful. In other words, what he's driving at is all of these things are beautiful because they're part of a picture or a bigger picture that we do not see. Remember what we said? We see the Lego pieces. We don't see this. We just have the pieces. If you use the analogy of a weaver, the, we hear the loom clicking, forming the tapestry, but we're not above the loom. We're beneath it. We're beneath the needle. And if you're beneath the needle, all you can see are the knots and snarls of the threads. But guess what's above those knots? Guess what's above that needle? There is the weaver. (laughs) And the weaver is putting together and forming a beautiful pattern, a beautiful tapestry that we may not see, that may not be visible to us, but he is threading it all together. Every single stitch, every single piece, Every passing season is part of God's bigger plan that has been ordained in redemption. And that's what we need to see here. In other words, God's making everything beautiful and He's going to use every tear that falls from your eye, every loss that you endure in life, Every season of mourning and weeping and dancing and laughing and rejoicing, he is going, he is doing something that escapes our, our vision right now. But then notice he says, God has put eternity in man's heart. Isn't that what he says in verse 11? He's put eternity in man's heart. And I realize that many would say, well, you know, this is just that, that's that God-sized hole that's in all of us, and it can only be filled with God. And I believe that, that only God can ultimately fill us and fulfill us and satisfy our souls. But that's not what this verse is teaching. What he's driving at is, is that, that, that God has put in us a desire for the eternal. One author writes this, that our hearts long for a purpose life without end under this time-chained sun. We are bound by time, but we are wired for eternity. That's what he's driving at. We are bound by time, but we are wired for eternity. That's why there's a sense in us that, that even though death is ahead of us, that there's something else, that it can't be the end. And so this is why we want to know, don't we? Don't you? Don't, don't we really want to know? Is there a purpose to it all? Is there a happy ever after? Yet what God does is God shows us that while this may be our longing, we are not built to understand the big picture because we are creatures. And so when we ask the question, how do all these unspeakable sorrows and all of these wonderful joys, how does it all mesh together to make something perfect and beautiful? Well, if you knew the answer, then you'd be God. If you knew the answer, you'd be God. And I understand that we have, we have a, a, a part of it as we have Scripture in front of us. 
but, but, but I, don't, I don't know how to sit in a hospital room and get the kind of news that someone might receive when it's a terminal or it's, a, it, it, it's, it's something that's life-threatening, right? And that single moment, that's not a Romans 8.28 moment. It's not. That's a moment where you're actually wondering, how does this fit in to the bigger picture? You ever been there? I've been there. It's not to dismiss Romans 8.28. But it's just to simply recognize that as we live our lives, this is how we live our lives. And the ebb and flow of these kinds of circumstances. And so, what it leads us to is a third observation here and about this God-centered perspective. We cannot fathom what God is doing. But we'll have to wait for the outcome. In other words, we want access to the box. We want to see the blueprint. But God restricts our access and He limits our autonomy despite our prideful demand to give us an answer. And that what happened with Job. Remember, that's what Job wanted. He wanted his day with God. He wanted his day in court. And when he got it, do you remember how God started off the whole conversation? He began to ask him, so where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Where were you when all of the universe was created? And what he did is he just began to ask him a series of rhetorical questions to demonstrate you're the creature and I am God. And that is a good thing. And so because it's a good thing, because while we can't fathom what God is doing, we know that he has a plan and that he is going to work it out for his glory and for our good with Christ Jesus and the gospel at the center of it. Let me illustrate it this way. Don't your kids get frustrated you because you control their lives, right? You can't eat that. You can't wear that. Give me your phone because we're going to set limits on the phone. Right? And they're screaming because they want autonomy. They want to be in control. They don't like it that you are extra. They, they think somehow that you're just this malicious deity who wants to ruin their entire life. When actually, you're just a good and wise parent. And you know that they got to go to bed because of what's going to happen tomorrow. And you know that there are all sorts of unknown dangers and those devices that they are not only completely ignorant of, but all those dangers will somehow find them. Right? They, they just, they don't get it. They don't understand why they cannot eat chicken nuggets and, and tater tots every morning, noon, and night. They don't get it. But their relationship to you, to trust you, as you are leading them and guiding them, their trust is built upon your character. You love them. You have what is best in view. You know the bigger picture that they don't. You see what they can't see. And that is exactly what Solomon is demonstrating. God knows the beginning and He knows the end and all the in-betweens and everything that He allows, everything that He permits, everything that He gives is for our good and ultimately will bring Him glory. And we have to trust Him. Because He's not only sovereign, you hear me? He's good. He's good. 
and nothing illustrates his goodness more than the gospel whereby he saves sinners and rescues us from death and futility. So what you see here in God's perfect sovereignty is this, is that God's sovereignty causes us to accept our limits and trust him with the bigger picture. Okay, like Job, you're right. I don't like any. There are things in life that I don't like. But you're God and I'm not. Isn't that a hard thing for us to learn? We adults are just like our children. We want to know all the whys and all the reasons. But we just don't want to simply trust in the God who has revealed himself in his word. Accept what you don't know and trust the God who has revealed himself in his word. Rest in his eternal promises. And then that will lead you to the final observation, God's purposeful sovereignty. So all of that just shows you God's perfect character, but now we see God's purposeful sovereignty in our response. And so as you get to verse 12, Solomon now makes some resolutions as he responds to God's sovereignty. Notice, he says in verse 12, I perceive, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So notice what he says is, is that God gives joy in life, in toil. This poem makes us cling to God. It enables us in clinging to God to live our life and to find joy as we receive pleasure. And all the ups and downs, there's actually joy. You know why? Because we know God is in control. It means that we can weep, but we weep not as those who do not have hope. Because we understand the gospel. We understand what Christ has done for our sin and his accomplishment over death. And so we're able to receive pleasure and pain as gifts from God. We're able to rejoice. And the text says we're able to do good, to live our lives and in submission to him, to eat bread, to quench our thirst. Because it is God who reigns over all the rhythms and repetitions of our lives. But verse 14 tells us that God acts with divine purpose. Quickly look. I perceive, I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now notice what he says about God's actions. Everything he does endures you can't add to what God does, and you can't take away from God what God does. You know what he's saying is? The best thing for me to do, for us to do, in our times and seasons, is to surrender to his good sovereignty. What is his purpose? Why won't he give you control? Is God just messing with us? Is that what he's doing? No. He tells you what he's doing. He's showing you He's leading us to do what? To fear him. It's not the first time he's going to mention this. So that people fear before him. God's sovereignty leads us to worship him. To fear him. To revere him. And many scoff this idea. The great theologian Kanye West <laughs> claims, claims that he does not subscribe to God-fearing because he won't be controlled. And then after he stated this, he typed, God is love, followed by these emojis that blow our understanding. You just have to see it. But here's what's silly about that. God already controls you. 
And he's great at it. There's no sense in being upset about God's sovereignty. He is. You you can't number your days. Death is appointed. Judgment is guaranteed. All of these experiences are going to come and they're going to go. And you can't schedule them. You can't work them in. You can't plan them. You have to accept them. And you have to accept them on the basis that they come from a good, sovereign God. And what that does is, it leads some to be angry. But the believer leads us to fear and worship, doesn't it? Because if, if, if you run from God, where will you run? To whom will you go? Isn't that even what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10? That we don't, don't fear those who can, can kill and destroy the body, but fear him who can kill and destroy the body in hell. But then what he does is he, he begins to, he, he states that this God who has that kind of sovereign power, he knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. And he's numbered every hair on your head. And therefore, he cares for us. And so, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on earth. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. If we fear the Lord, then we have proper recognition of our condition as sinners. And we have a right view of God who rules and reigns. But look at verse 15. That's his purpose, that we fear him. But verse 15, and and here's the bridge to next week's sermon as well. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Very difficult passage to interpret and to even translate into the English. But it strikes at something that is, is in all of us. Don't, don't you wish that you could relive certain moments? Don't you wish you had more time or could go back in time? I have in my pocket, uh, my kids didn't know what these were. They're like, what is that? It's that thing you carried in a wallet that you put your photos in. Yeah, where you didn't have phones, where you just flipped up and opened your pictures. So I was showing them this the other night. And then they were taking these pictures out and taking photos of it on their phone. But I, I flipped through this and I think, man, I'd like to go back. Or there's things that happen in life and you wish you could go back and you could change it. You know, alter it. Try to manipulate it. And that's why we love movies like Back to the Future. If we could prevent something from happening or right some kind of wrong. But see, what, what he's saying in verse 15 is that ultimately God's going to bring all things into judgment. And he's going to make everything right at the end of time. That's what he's getting at. Though we can't go back and what is, it, it is what it is. But ultimately, God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, what he's getting at is, is God will bring everything into judgment. And one day he's going to set everything right. And that's why the gospel's good news. Because the gospel shows us that God who controls time, who writes the story of our world, has sent Christ in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, what God has done in Christ is He has entered time, not only to redeem us, but ultimately to make everything right. 
And so all the events, if you read the Gospels of Jesus' life, were defined by when that time had come. His time and seasons were all determined for the purpose of our salvation. And if that is the case, how much more should we know that one day he's going to make everything right under heaven? And so the application of this is simple. One day God will make everything right with perfect judgment and justice. And he will do so because he has the big picture. And he's bringing everything under the authority of Christ. And so if we go back to that Lego illustration when you build these Legos, it's funny because when your kids build Lego projects, they get to the end result, but what, what, what the truth is is that all along the way there were missing pieces and there were things you had to undo and then redo, right? But in the end, you have the finished project, product. And it's magnificent. And the message of the gospel is, even though life is filled with all these unpredictable, inscrutable things, Ultimately, what is going to be in the kingdom that is yet to come is going to be so magnificent that all the things we experience in this life are just going to, they're just going to fold into the glory that is ahead of us in Christ. And so this morning, the God of our times calls us to ask these questions. Do you believe that God is good and wise? Do you rest in his sovereignty? Will you today surrender your attempt to control life and put your trust in him? Not just for salvation, but most importantly for salvation. But will you trust him with all the seasons of your life? Can you rest knowing that God has ordained life and put your trust in him? And can you rest knowing that God has an end that will be utter glorious and you can look to that day? He is the king of time. Now is the time to surrender to him. Let's stand as we prepare to worship together. Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. Thank you for the truth that you reign and rule over time. And God, I pray that even now that we will will relent and even repent of our attempt to control things, that we will surrender fully to you, knowing that you're good and that you're faithful, that we can trust you not only with our salvation, but with all the passing seasons, because you are sovereign and you are good. And you have made that known through Jesus and all that he has done for us. In his name.